All right, I'm here talking with Alex Klass, who is Distinguished McKnight University Professor at the University of Minnesota Law School. Today we're going to talk about some of her recent work on energy transportation. Welcome, Alex. Thank you. Great to be here. So you've written several articles over the past few years on the differences between approval of interstate natural gas pipelines, which are subject to a federal process, compared to approval of oil pipelines and electric transmission lines, which are subject to a state uh, approval process. Why is one type of infrastructure subject to federal law and others subject to state law, and, and how and why is that important? So it really is a historical matter. These uh, different types of energy transportation, the needs and how they were used, developed at different times, and the law responded to that. So they all used to be state by state. Most of the regulatory, regulatory authority was at the state level. But then in the 1930s, many cities were, uh, were um, switching from using manufactured gas or town gas to we now had pipelines to transport gas, and so they wanted to switch to natural gas, which uh, was cleaner burning, had a higher BTU value. And there was um, some regulatory difficulty building some of those pipelines from the source of natural gas in Texas and Oklahoma to um, cities on the East Coast, particularly South Carolina and Georgia, um, were not granting the um, uh, approvals or allowing eminent domain for, the, for those pi pipelines because they said, what's in it, what's in it for them? Um, uh, folks uh, on the East Coast uh, went running to Congress, and Congress enacted the Natural Gas Act, which created a federal um, siting and approval process and nationwide eminent domain authority for interstate natural gas pipelines to overcome those state barriers, and we've had that system ever since. We, at the time, there were not those same needs or same barriers with regard to either oil pipelines or with regard to electric transmission lines. Um, with regard to electric transmission lines, grids and utilities were still very local in scope. Everybody wanted electric, tra uh, electric transmission line because we were sort of expanding electrification. That was seen as a good thing. Um, and you did have very local grids. With regard to oil, we've always had multiple ways to um, transport oil. You can do it by pipeline. You can also, in the old days, you did it by teams of horses. That's where the, where the name Teamsters comes from, um, by ship and by rail. So you didn't have those same bottlenecks uh, because we had multiple uh, ways to transport oil. Um, what's changed now, of course, is that we have regional and almost national um, electric grids, but we still have a state-by-state -state system of approval, which has made it very difficult to build interstate electric transmission lines to integrate more renewable energy into the grid because um, we have lots of wind energy and solar energy, particularly wind energy, though, at utility scale, only in kind of the middle parts of the country, and then we have these load centers or population centers um, on the coasts or further away, and so you need these multi-state transmission lines, um, and we don't have a regulatory system to um, allow those lines to be built in the same way that we've had for decades in the natural gas pipeline um, context. Does that mean that you would favor uh, amendments to the Federal Power Act to make uh, to provide for a national siting regime for transmission, or do you see some other solution to this problem? That would be one way to address it. You could create a system like we have for natural gas pipelines, and you'd have some sort of certificate of public convenience and necessity uh, regime at the federal level 
to allow for that. I think politically that is kind of a non-starter today. When the Natural Gas Act uh, was enacted, uh, was during the New Deal, we were creating federal authority for lots of different things. We are in a very different time right now. And there's also arguments that you have a lot of local land use concerns associated with um, electric transmission lines, just like you do with natural gas pipelines, uh, and those will not be um, recognized as much. Um, those, those impacts will not be recognized as much in a federal um, system. It would certainly be one way to go, and I wouldn't be opposed to that, but I think it, it's unlikely to happen. Other ways to address that could be through a regional siting approach. We have regional transmission organizations in many parts of the country that are more, they, they're regional planning processes for transmission lines. They don't have any siting authority. You could envision a situation where you gave siting and eminent domain authority to those RTOs. That comes with its own sets of problems, but it would put it in a system that sort of matches the scale and scope of the grid, which is regional. Um, another way to go about it would be to have some federal mandates on the states to require states to consider regional need, regional transmission needs, regional energy needs, particularly regional clean energy needs in making their siting decisions, which they don't have to do right now, which is the approach that we have for uh, cell phone towers. Uh, so that you still have the siting, the regulatory authority at either a state or a local level, but you have some federal mandates that need to be implemented. So that would be an approach as well. You, you wrote an article recently called Future Proofing Energy Transport Law. What do you mean by future proofing in this context, and how should we go about doing it? This the future proofing article was sort of the culmination of a lot of research and, and articles that I've written over the last few years, looking at some of these dynamics about energy transport. And I kind of wanted to bring it all together because one of our real challenges, whether we're talking about natural gas, we're talking about electricity, we're talking about renewable energy, is technology is changing so quickly. Uh, the economics are changing along with that. And in these times of uncertainty uh, and change, how do we decide what to build? Because when we're talking about energy transport infrastructure, this is billions of dollars of long-lived assets that we're building. So we talk about an oil pipeline or a natural gas pipeline or an electric transmission line. These are, this is infrastructure that's designed to last for 40 years, 50 years or more. And so it's very difficult to figure out how we, are, we build infrastructure to meet the needs of the present while still planning for the future. And so I wanted to sort of look at that and try to come up with some uh, criteria to figure out what to build in this time of rapid change. And I sort of came up with sort of a three, three criteria to try to to try to apply more overall to any type of infrastructure. And so one aspect is, is that one, one criteria is what we've already talked about a little bit, is to, to give siting and eminent domain authority to either federal regulators or regional regulators when the energy transport infrastructure crosses state boundaries, to try to match the regulatory authority with the type of infrastructure that we're building. Uh, so that's one aspect of this. The second is to allow in any regulatory regime, in any law, to try to allow for flexibility regarding the location and amount of energy resources that you're going to transport or import or 
export. So if you come up with a law, try to make it as flexible as possible, not assume that the resources in 20 years are gonna be exactly where they are now. And so the example that I give in the paper is uh, liquefied natural gas import and export terminals. So in the early 2000s, there were significant concerns in the United States about we were running out of natural gas, we were gonna need to import a lot of natural gas. All the projections were that um, we weren't gonna have enough natural gas and there, uh, there had been quite a bit of difficulty in uh, citing natural gas, uh, liquefied natural gas import facilities that were needed to transport natural gas across oceans. So you, can, of course, cannot use pipelines for that. You need to liquefy it, put it in a tanker, and you need an import or an export facility. And states, particularly California, were saying, hey, it's states that need to give the approval for these import facilities, and we're not going to give approval. Um, FERC had a different view, there was litigation. Ultimately, this went to Congress and in the Energy Policy Act of 2005, uh, citing authority, approval authority was transferred uh, from, the, from the states to the federal government to approve those facilities. At the time, the concern was, we're gonna run out of natural gas, we need import facilities, but the law was written much more broadly to cover both import facilities and export facilities. Of course, two years after the Energy Policy Act of 2005, hydraulic fracturing began in earnest, and now we have lots of natural gas, not only for ourselves, but to export, and so that law, which was designed, which was which was passed to be uh, to help out with import facilities, has been used to more quickly permit natural gas export facilities. So I use that in the paper as an example of a law that, whether intentional or not, was written broadly enough with flexibility in mind that it has allowed us to pivot um, to using it for perhaps different purposes. So I think we need to think about that. Um, and then the third criteria that I think we want to think about is supporting clean energy goals. So when we are enacting new laws or new regulations governing energy transport, we want to do it in a way that is looking forward to a clean energy transition, uh, even if we don't know exactly how that will take place. Yeah, not something that the current administration is prioritizing, but perhaps future administrations will. Um, so, good. Let me ask you uh, one other aspect of the future proofing article. Get your thoughts on how this idea of future proofing might apply to or help us analyze whether or not to build oil pipelines. Can you say a little more about that? Yes. So the two applications in the paper, one is what we should do with interstate transmission lines. And as I've already said, there I think we do need to move to a federal or a regional um, system. So that's sort of one application of these three factors. The other one that I talk about in the paper is with regard to oil, should we be building more oil pipelines to transport oil to meet our current needs, or should we focus more on transporting oil by rail? Because we could make a decision that we have a lot of oil pipelines. Even if we want to transport more oil, let's not build any more new oil pipelines, but let's transport more by rail. And of course, there has been um, a significant increase in transporting oil by rail soon after 2007 when fracking came into place, in part because um, we now have a lot of oil coming out of North Dakota, uh, which we didn't have in the past, and so there, aren't, there was not that pipeline um, infrastructure. Same with um, tar sands oil up in Canada, and then of course we even have more oil than the, the pipeline um, system can meet in the Texas and Oklahoma area as well, as well, in the Permian Basin. 
Um, so should we build new oil pipelines or should we focus more on rail? And the paper, in the paper I come to the conclusion, which um, is somewhat controversial and not everyone would agree with, is that we actually should invest more in rail and we should focus more on transporting additional oil by rail. So recognizing that we still need oil to drive our cars and um, power parts of our energy system, but we want would like to move away from oil towards um, uh, electrifying transportation as we decarbonize our electricity system, which we're doing um, a pretty good job of right now. So we need oil now, but we want to move away from that. So the idea is that if we take this flexibility idea uh, seriously, rail is a very flexible uh, means of transportation. We can use it to transport oil now, and then if we're using less oil 40 years or 50 years into the in the future, then we can repurpose the rail system. We can use it to transport people and grains. We can turn, we, we've done a very good job of um, turning rail lines into bicycle trails. So why don't we make that investment in a safer um, rail transport system and not invest in more pipelines, which are long-lived um, infrastructure assets that we really only can use uh, to transport fossil fuel. That raises the issue of which is safer, because we have safety issues associated with both. And there's a you know, continuing debate over whether rail is safer or pipelines are safer. In some ways, it's comparing apples and oranges. I mean, certainly when you have um, a rail car um, derailment or an explosion, you have sometimes loss of life, you have significant property damage, everybody knows about it, uh, but we have pretty significant environmental damage when you have um, pipeline leaks, and oftentimes you don't know about those right away. Uh, so then the question is, are we in a better position to make transporting oil by pipeline safer or transporting oil by rail safer. And in the paper, I conclude that we actually have probably a better regulatory capacity to improve the safety of rail than we do for pipelines. Uh, Congress has passed some new legislation in the, uh, in the FAST Act, the Fixing America Surface Transportation Act, just a, just a couple of years ago, um, that calls for safer rail cars, safer tracks, um, and I think there's a better chance of doing that. Um, and again, unless it's pretty clear that one is a lot safer than the other, I think you go with a more flexible um, infrastructure that's going to help transition to a cleaner energy future. And I'm hearing that some oil companies are warming to rail transportation as well because of the difficulty of getting pipelines sited has some political momentum behind it, maybe. It depends on the price of oil. So when oil prices are high, then, then yes, um, lots of oil companies do prefer rail because also you're not, um, you're not locked into longer-term contracts. There's a lot more flexibility. The problem is, is that when oil prices are low, um, rail is not as attractive because it does cost more. I think it's about 10 to $15 a barrel more to transport uh, by rail. Hey, thanks. Last question. So um, most of the siting regimes that govern these kinds of energy network infrastructure include some sort of eminent domain power associated with them. How has the conversation surrounding the use of eminent domain for energy infrastructure changed in the last decade or so? So uh, the ability to use eminent domain uh, for any type of project is governed by the Fifth Amendment to the U.S. Constitution and then equivalent state constitutional provisions that typically say, you know, nor shall private property be taken for public use without just compensation. So in order to exercise eminent domain, it has to be for a public use and there has to be just compensation. And 
typically, or at least in the past, uh, projects like electric transmission lines, oil pipelines, gas pipelines were seen as kind of a classic public use. It really wasn't that controversial. It was controversial for the landowners who didn't want their land taken, but courts would always find there was a public use. Then in um, 2005, the U.S. Supreme Court decided a case called Kelo versus City of New London that didn't deal with energy infrastructure at all, but it dealt with um, whether taking land to give from one private party to another for economic development purposes was a public use. The court found in a 5-4 decision that it was, but it was a very controversial decision in terms of the public, and lots of states amended their constitutions or passed new laws, making it very difficult for economic development to be classified as a public use. Didn't have an immediate impact on energy infrastructure at all, and uh, because that was, again, seen as a public use, and um, also because a lot of states specifically carved those types of projects out um, from any amendments that they made. But over the last 10 years, now because of fracking, because of increases in wind energy, we're just building a lot more energy infrastructure than we were before. So we hadn't been building a lot of oil pipelines and natural gas pipelines except um, now in these last 10 years. Those projects have gotten controversial in part because we're building more of it. Um, and in part because you have now this, this concerted effort uh, of both landowners and property rights advocates working together in many cases with environmental groups um, to oppose fossil fuel infrastructure. And so there is a now a greater, there's just more litigants involved in this and more of a challenge to the public use of these projects, sometimes because these are projects designed for export. So it's harder to justify the public use of a natural gas pipeline or an oil pipeline where the product being transferred, it, transported is going to export for other countries. It starts to look more like an economic development type of taking, which of course the Kelo case and the post-Kelo legislation um, dealt with. And so there is a much greater questioning of these projects being a public use, particularly the um, fossil fuel projects. And keep in mind, with energy infrastructure, what's very different than in other cases of eminent domain is you don't even have a government as the plaintiff who is exercising public use. In these cases, the government has delegated authority to private parties, the oil companies, the gas companies, um, electric utilities, to exercise eminent domain. So you have a private party that's bringing the eminent domain action, and unless you can show a direct benefit to citizens of that state, I think it's harder to justify the public use, and we're seeing a lot more challenges in that area. And do you see this challenge limited to the export situation, or do you think there's a broader challenge to that when, when, the, when this power is delegated to a private actor? I think on the oil and the gas pipeline uh, situation, it's in sort of two instances. One is um, for the natural gas pipelines, it's mostly focused on the export issues. For oil pipelines, because oil pipelines are still approved on a state-by-state -state basis, you can also make the argument that in-state citizens are not getting those benefits, and so then you get, in, you get into a question of how do you define the public? And if it's a state-by-state -state eminent domain process, you can make arguments that the focus of the court should only be on the citizens of those states. That also comes into play with electric transmission lines uh, if, if in-state residents are not receiving the electricity and for these multi-state lines, 
uh, that are you know maybe crossing three or four states, you can see the public use for the state that's exporting the energy. You can see the public use for the states that are importing the energy. But for the two or three states in between, it's harder to justify that public use. So um, it's coming up even when energy is moving from state to state, what if, it, if you have a state that is in charge of the approval process, which you do for both oil pipelines mm -hmm. and for electric transmission lines. All right. Well, thank you very much for talking to us today. My pleasure.